Chapter Twenty One, Part Three of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty One: The States General of the Fourteenth Century, Part Three. For a month after this triple murder, committed with such official parade, Marcel reigned dictator in Paris. He removed from the council of thirty-six deputies such members as he could not rely upon, and introduced his own confidants. He cited the council, thus modified, to express approval of the blow just struck, and the deputies, some from conviction and others from doubt, that is, fear, answered that they believed that for what had been done there had been a good and just cause. The King of Navarre was recalled from Nantes to Paris, and the Dauphin was obliged to assign to him, in the King's name, as a make-up for his losses, ten thousand livres a year on landed property in Languedoc. Such was the young prince's condition, that almost every day he was reduced to the necessity of dining with his most dangerous and most hypocritical enemy. A man of family, devoted to the Dauphin, who was now called Regent, Philip de Repenti by name lost his head on the 19th of March, 1358, on the market-place, for having attempted, with a few bold comrades, to place the regent beyond the power and the reach of the people of Paris. Six days afterwards, however, on the 25th of March, the Dauphins succeeded in escaping, and repaired first of all to Senlis, and then to Provence, where he found the estates of Champagne eager to welcome him. Marcel at once sent to Provence two deputies with instructions to bind over the three orders of Champagne to be at one with them of Paris, and not to be astounded at what had been done. Before answering, the members of the estates withdrew into a garden to parley together, and sent to pray the regent to come and meet them. "'My lord,' said the Count de Brain to him, in the name of the nobility, "'did you ever suffer any harm or villainy at the hands of de Conflans, Marshal of Champagne, for which he deserved to be put to death, as he hath been by them of Paris? The prince replied that he firmly held and believed that the said marshal and Robert de Clermont had well and loyally served and advised him. My lord, replied the Count de Brain, we champagnies who are here do thank you for that which you have just said, and do desire you to do full justice on those who have put our friend to death without cause. And they bound themselves to support him with their persons and their property, for the chastisement of them who had been the authors of the outrage." The Dauphin, with full trust in this manifestation and this promise, convoked at Compiègne, for the 4th of May, 1358, no longer the estates of Champagne only, but the states-general in their entirety, who, on separating at the close of their last session, had adjourned to the 1st of May following. The story of this fresh session, and of the events determined by it, is here reproduced textually, just as it has come down to us from the last continuer of the Chronicle of William of Nangis the most favourable amongst all the chroniclers of the time to Stephen Marcel and the popular party in Paris. All the deputies, and especially the friends of the noble slain, did with one heart and one mind counsel the Lord Charles, Duke of Normandy, to have the homicide stricken to death, and if he could not do so by reason of the number of their defenders, they urged him to lay vigorous siege to the city of Paris, either with an armed force or by forbidding the entry of victuals thereunto, in such sort that it should understand and perceive for a certainty that the death of the provost of tradesmen and of his accomplices was intended. 
the said provost and those who after the regent's departure had taken the government of the city clearly understood this intention and they then implored the university of studies at paris to send deputies to the said lord regent to humbly adjure him in their name and in the name of the whole city to banish from his heart the wrath he had conceived against their fellow-citizen offering and promising moreover a suitable reparation for the offence provided that the lives of the persons were spared the university concerned for the welfare of the city sent several deputies of weight to treat about the matter they were received by the lord duke charles and the other lords with great kindness and they brought back word to paris that the demand made at compegna was that ten or a dozen or even only five or six of the men suspected of the crime lately committed at paris should be sent to compegna where there was no design of putting them to death and if this were done the duke regent would return to his old and intimate friendship with the parisians but provost marcel and his accomplices who were feared for themselves did not believe that if they fell into the hands of the lord duke they could escape a terrible death and they had no mind to run such a risk taking therefore a bold resolution they desired to be treated as all the rest of the citizens and to that end sent several deputations to the lord regent either to compegna or to meaux whither he sometimes removed but they got no gracious reply and rather words of bitterness and threatening thereupon being seized with alarm for their city into the which the lord regent and his noble comrades were so ardently desirous of re-entering and being minded to pull it out of reach from the peril which threatened it they began to fortify themselves therein to repair the walls to deepen the ditches to build new ramparts on the eastern side and to throw up barriers at all the gates as they lacked a captain they sent to charles the bad king of navarre who was at that time in normandy and whom they knew to be freshly embroiled with the regent and they requested him to come to paris with a strong body of men-at-arms and to be their captain there and their defender against all their foes save the lord john king of france a prisoner in england the king of navarre with all his men was received in state on the fifteenth of june by the parisians to the great indignation of the prince regent his friends and many others the nobles thereupon began to draw near to paris and to ride about in the fields of the neighbourhood prepared to fight if there should be a sortie from paris to attack them on a certain day the besiegers came right up to the bridge of charenton as if to draw out the king of navarre and the parisians to battle the king of navarre issued forth armed with his men and drawing near to the besiegers had long conversations with them without fighting and afterwards went back into paris at sight hereof the parisians suspected that this king who was himself a noble was conspiring with the besiegers and was preparing to deal some secret blow to the detriment of paris so they conceived mistrust of him and his and stripped him of his office of captain he went forth sorely vexed from paris he and his and the english especially whom he had brought with him insulted certain parisians whence it happened that before they were out of the city several of them were massacred by the folks of paris who afterwards confined themselves within their walls carefully guarding the gates by day and by night keeping up strong patrols on the ramparts whilst marcel inside paris where he reigned supreme was a prey on his own account and that of his besieged city to these anxieties and perils an event occurred outside which seemed to open to him a prospect of powerful aid perhaps of decisive victory throughout several provinces the peasants whose condition sad and hard as it already was under the feudal system had been still further aggravated by the outrages and irregularities of war not finding any protection in their lords 
and often being oppressed by them as if they had been foes, had recourse to insurrection in order to escape from the evils which came down upon them every day and from every quarter. They bore and would bear anything, it was said, and they got the name of Jacques Bonhomme, Jack Goodfellow, but this taunt they belied in a terrible manner. We will quote from the last continuer of William of Nangis, the least declamatory and the least confused of all the chroniclers of that period. In this same year, 1358, he says, in the summer, the first rising took place on the 28th of May, the peasants in the neighborhood of Saint-Loup de Serrant and Clermont, in the diocese of Beauvais, took up arms against the nobles of France. They assembled in great numbers, set at their head a certain peasant named William Carl, or Cal, or Calais, of more intelligence than the rest, and marching by companies under their own flag, roamed over the country, slaying and massacring all the nobles they met, even their own lords. Not content with that, they demolished the houses and castles of the nobles, and what is still more deplorable, they villainously put to death the noble dames and little children who fell into their hands, and afterwards they strutted about, they and their wives, bedizened with the garments they had stripped from their victims. The number of men who had thus risen amounted to five thousand, and the rising extended to the outskirts of Paris. They had begun it from sheer necessity and love of justice, for their lords oppressed instead of defending them, but before long they proceeded to the most hateful and criminal deeds. They took and destroyed from top to bottom the strong castle of Ermenonville, where they put to death a multitude of men and dames of noble family who had taken refuge there. For some time the nobles no longer went about as before. None of them durst set a foot outside the fortified places. Jockery had taken the form of a fit of demagogic fury, and the jacks, or good fellows, swarming out of their little hovels, were the terror of the castle. Had Marcel provoked this bloody insurrection? There is strong presumption against him. Many of his contemporaries say he had, and the Dauphin himself wrote on the 30th of August, 1359, to the Count of Savoy, that one of the most heinous acts of Marcel and his partisans was exciting the folks of the open country in France, of Beauvaises and Champagne and other districts, against the nobles of the said kingdom, whence so many evils have proceeded as no man should or could conceive. It is quite certain, however, that the insurrection, having once broken out, Marcel hastened to profit by it, and encouraged and even supported it at several points. Amongst other things, he sent from Paris a body of three hundred men to the assistance of the peasants who were besieging the castle of Vermenonville. It is the due penalty paid by reformers who allow themselves to drift into revolution, that they become before long accomplices in mischief or crime, which their original design and their own personal interest made it incumbent on them to prevent or repress. The reaction against Jacquerie was speedy and shockingly bloody. The nobles, the Dauphin, and the King of Navarre, a prince and a noble at the same time that he was a scoundrel, made common cause against the good fellows, who were the more disorderly in proportion as they had become more numerous, and believed themselves more invincible. The ascendancy of the masters over the rebels was soon too strong for resistance. At Meaux, of which the good fellows had obtained possession, they were surprised and massacred to the number, it is said, of seven thousand, with the town burning about their ears. In Beauvaises, the king of Navarre, after having made a show of treating with their chieftain, William Carl, or Calais, got possession of him, and had him beheaded, wearing a trivet of red-hot iron, says one of the chroniclers, by way of crown. He then moved upon a camp of good fellows assembled near Montdidier, 
slew three thousand of them, and dispersed the remainder. These figures are probably very much exaggerated, as nearly always happens in such accounts, but the continuer of William of Nangis, so justly severe on the outrages and barbarities of the insurgent peasants, is not less so on those of their conquerors. The nobles of France, he says, committed at that time such ravages in the district of Meaux that there was no need for the English to come and destroy our country. Those mortal enemies of the kingdom could not have done what was done by the nobles at home. Marcel from that moment perceived that his cause was lost, and no longer dreamed of anything but saving himself and his at any price, for he thought, says Froissart, that it paid better to slay than to be slain. Although he had more than once experienced the disloyalty of the King of Navarre, he entered into fresh negotiations with him, hoping to use him as an intermediary between himself and the Dauphin, in order to obtain either an acceptable peace or guarantees for his own security, in case of extreme danger. The King of Navarre lent a ready ear to these overtures. He had no scruple about negotiating with this or that individual, this or that party, flattering himself that he would make one or the other useful for his own purposes. Marcel had no difficulty in discovering that the real design of the King of Navarre was to set aside the House of Valois and the Plantagenets together, and to become King of France himself, as a descendant in his own person of Saint-Louis, though one degree more remote. An understanding was renewed between the two, such as it is possible to have between two personal interests fundamentally different, but capable of being for the moment mutually helpful. Marcel, under pretext of defence against the besiegers, admitted into Paris a pretty large number of English in the pay of the King of Navarre. Before long, quarrels arose between the Parisians and these unpopular foreigners. On the 21st of July, 1358, during one of these quarrels, twenty-four English were massacred by the people, and four hundred others, it is said, were in danger of undergoing the same fate, when Marcel came up and succeeded in saving their lives by having them imprisoned in the Louvre the quarrel grew hotter and spread farther. The people of Paris went and attacked other mercenaries of the King of Navarre, chiefly English, who were occupying Saint-Denis and Saint-Cloud. The Parisians were beaten, and the King of Navarre withdrew to Saint-Denis. On the 27th of July, Marcel boldly resolved to set at liberty and to send over to him the four hundred English imprisoned in the Louvre. He had let them out accordingly, and himself escorted them as far as the gate Saint-Honneur, in the midst of a throng that made no movement for all its irritation. Some of Marcel's satellites who formed the escort cried out as they went, Has anybody aught to say against the setting of these prisoners at liberty? The Parisians remembered their late reverse, and not a voice was raised. Strongly moved as the people of Paris were in their hearts against the provost of tradesmen, says a contemporary chronicler, there was not a man who durst commence a riot. Marcel's position became day by day more critical. The Dauphin, encamped with his army around Paris, was keeping up secret but very active communications with it, and a party, numerous and already growing in popularity, was being formed there in his favour. Men of note, who were lately Marcel's comrades, were now pronouncing against him, and John Maillard, one of the four chosen captains of the municipal forces, was the most vigilant. Marcel, at his wit's end, made an offer to the King of Navarre to deliver up Paris to him on the night between the 31st of July and the 1st of August. All was ready for carrying out this design. During the day of the 31st of July, Marcel would have changed the keepers of the Saint-Denis gate, but Maillard opposed him, rushed to the Hôtel de Ville, seized the banner of France, jumped on horseback, and rode through the city shouting, Montjoy Saint-Denis, for the King and the Duke! 
This was the rallying cry of the Dauphin's partisans. The day ended with a great riot amongst the people. Towards eleven o'clock at night, Marcel, followed by his people, armed from head to foot, made his way to the St. Anthony Gate, holding in his hands, it is said, the keys of the city. Whilst he was there, waiting for the arrival of the King of Navarre's men, Maillart came up with torches and lanterns and a numerous assemblage. He went straight to the provost and said to him, "'Stephen, Stephen, what do you hear at this hour?' "'John, what business have you to meddle? I am here to take the guard of the city of which I have the government.' "'By God,' rejoined Maillart, "'that will not do. You are not here at this hour for any good, and I'll prove it to you,' said he, addressing his comrades. "'See, he holds in his hands the keys of the gates to betray the city.' "'You lie, John,' said Marcel. "'By God, you traitor, tis you who lie,' replied Maillart. "'Death, death, to all on his side.' And he raised his battle-axe against Marcel. Philippe Giffard, one of the provost's friends, threw himself before Marcel and covered him for a moment with his own body, but the struggle had begun in earnest. Maillart plied his battle-axe upon Marcel, who fell pierced with many wounds. Six of his comrades shared the same fate, and Robert Lecoq, bishop of Laon, saved himself by putting on a cordelier's habit. Maillart's company divided themselves into several bands, and spreading themselves all over the city, carrying the news everywhere, and dispatching or arresting the partisans of Marcel. The next morning, the 1st of August, 1358, John Maillard brought together in the market-place the greater part of the community of Paris, explained for what reason he had slain the provost of tradesmen, and in what offence he had detected him, and pointed out quietly and discreetly how, that on this very night the city of Paris must have been overrun and destroyed, if God of his grace had not applied a remedy. When the people who were present heard these news, they were much astounded at the peril in which they had been, and the greater part thanked God with folded hands for the grace he had done them. The corpse of Stephen Marcel was stripped and exposed quite naked to the public gaze, in front of St. Catherine du Val de Boyer, on the very spot where, by his orders, the corpses of the two marshals, Robert de Clermont and John de Conflan, had been exposed five months before. He was afterwards cast into the river in the presence of a great concourse. Then were sentenced to death by the Council of Prudhommes of Paris, and executed by diverse forms of deadly torture, several who had been of the sect of the provost, the regent having declared that he would not re-enter Paris until these traitors had ceased to live. Thus perished, after scarcely three years' political life, and by the hands of his former friends, a man of rare capacity and energy, who at the outset had formed none but patriotic designs, and had no doubt promised himself a better fate. When, in December 1355, at the summons of a deplorably incapable and feeble king, Marcel, a simple burgher of Paris and quite a new man, entered the assembly of the States-General of France, itself quite a new power, he was justly struck with the vices and abuses of the kingly government, with the evils and the dangers being entailed thereby upon France, and with the necessity for applying some remedy. But notwithstanding this perfectly honest and sound conviction, he fell into a capital error. He tried to abolish, for a time at least, the government he desired to reform, and to substitute for the kingship and its agents the people and their elect. For more than three centuries the kingship had been the form of power which had naturally assumed shape and development in France, whilst seconding the natural labor attending the formation and development of the French nation. But this labor had as yet advanced but a little way, and the nascent nation was not in a condition to take up position at the head of its government. 
Stephen Marcel attempted by means of the States-General of the fourteenth century to bring to pass what we in the nineteenth, and after all the advances of the French nation, have not yet succeeded in getting accomplished, to wit, the government of the country by the country itself. Marcel, going from excess to excess and from reverse to reverse in the pursuit of his impracticable enterprise, found himself before long engaged in a fierce struggle with the feudal aristocracy, still so powerful at that time as well as with the kingship. Being reduced to depend entirely during this struggle upon such strength as could be supplied by a municipal democracy incoherent, inexperienced, and full of divisions in its own ranks, and by a mad insurrection in the country districts, he rapidly fell into the selfish and criminal condition of the man whose special concern is his own personal safety. This he sought to secure by an unworthy alliance with the most scoundrelly amongst his ambitious contemporaries, and he would have given up his own city as well as France to the King of Navarre and the English, had not another burgher of Paris, John Maillard, stopped him and put him to death at the very moment when the patriot of the States-General of 1355 was about to become a traitor to his country. Hardly thirteen years before, when Stephen Marcel was already a full-grown man, the great Flemish burgher, James van Artevelde, had, in the cause of his country's liberties, attempted a similar enterprise, and after a series of great deeds at the outset, and then of faults also similar to those of Marcel, had fallen into the same abyss, and had perished by the hand of his fellow-citizens, at the very moment when he was labouring to put Flanders, his native country, into the hands of a foreign master, the Prince of Wales, son of Edward III, King of England. Of all political snares the democratic is the most tempting, but it is also the most demoralizing and the most deceptive when, instead of consulting the interests of the democracy by securing public liberties, a man aspires to put it in direct possession of the supreme power, and with its sole support to take upon himself the direction of the helm. One single result of importance was won for France by the States-General of the fourteenth century, namely, the principle of the nation's right to intervene in their own affairs, and to set their government straight when it had gone wrong, or was incapable of performing that duty itself. Up to that time, in the thirteenth century, and at the opening of the fourteenth, the States-General had been hardly anything more than a temporary expedient employed by the kingship itself to solve some special question, or to escape from some grave embarrassment. Starting from King John, the States-General became one of the principles of national right, a principle which did not disappear even when it remained without application, and the prestige of which survived even its reverses. Faith and hope fill a prominent place in the lives of peoples as well as of individuals. Having sprung into real existence in 1355, the States-General of France found themselves alive again in 1789, and we may hope that, after so long a trial, their rebuffs and their mistakes will not be more fatal to them in our day. End of chapter 21